Today on Rolling with New York Mike. Also have to think towards the future and say, how are we going to attract people? How are we going to get patriots to join the military? If we treat people the way we treated those of us that fought in and returned from Vietnam, including the families of the fallen. Welcome to Rolling with the most patriotic man I know, my husband. And now his podcast, Rolling with New York Mike. Get on the ride. Okay, so rolling with New York, Mike, and yeah, we're going to continue where we left off. If I can remember where I left off, it's it's, it's been so long, it's been crazy, and I, I really appreciate you guys sticking with me. I know that some people catch up a little bit, and it's still, I got to apologize for just the space in between, it, but it's the way it is until it gets right. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get right soon, I promise you, but anyway, look. I know I went over the ride to Washington, D.C., which is really a ride from San Diego to Sacramento to the unification rally where I spoke on Sunday and then left Sunday about 1230 with Mark the Bot. And we, we, we rode up together. Thank you, Mark, for doing that. I think I said that a, a million times and I meant every one of it. After I spoke, we got on the bikes. It was about 12.30 by the time we got on the road and took Route 80 all the way from Sacramento to Wendover, Nevada. It's crazy, but that's where we ended up Sunday night, which gave us a jump start. And then 700 miles on Monday, almost 700 on Tuesday. Wednesday, we got to um, Cleveland, met with Robert Patrick, and uh, the next day, Thursday, rolled into Washington, D.C., and it was great. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I went over most of this stuff. But Thursday night, it was it was great to get to Shelley's. And then and then we got to Old Habits for dinner with all the guys from Rolling Thunder, Brian and the guys from Harley that were there, Harley Corporate. It was great. It was a great night. Back to Shelley's after that. Friday night. Well, Friday, we went down to some some place in Virginia to, to visit Robert's. The gravesite of Robert's grandfather. Yeah, Samuel Patrick. It was it was awesome. Spent the time at the cemetery with the booze fighters. Robert's the booze fighters chapter from down there with uh, Bam, I, I think is the P. Great people. It was a great afternoon. Then we raced back the 150 miles back to Washington in time for the candlelight vigil at the wall saturday night the taps event i think i went over that if you look it up robert patrick's speech at the taps event is on youtube it was excellent excellent so sunday at the pentagon parking lot i i say it's close to a hundred thousand bikes it was fabulous it was fabulous yeah the the event itself that was at rfk stadium it was a, it was a better produced event at the stadium but there's no way we were going to get the amount of bikes. And somehow that Pentagon parking lot has a, a key of its own. It's got something that it's 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 hard to describe and it's hard to replace. You, you just, it's the Pentagon for crying out loud. You can't do anything there. It's true. At RFK, man, we had vendors. We had, we had the whole Harley demo fleet. We were able to sell stuff. We had the, the stage and the microphone. and they, It was great. Can't do any of that at the Pentagon parking lot. But somehow, some way, that Pentagon just has 
it ha- it's got it and it made sense and and it was a great day yeah rolling to remember the ambets the job they did just can't be appreciated enough and i can't thank them enough so we made it back and i know that i i left off a lot of stuff i could criticize a lot of things but why it's rolling to remember is there room for a group but crying out loud rolling thunder after 32 years died at 2020 covid it, it was and at the white house on the white house lawn with president trump on memorial day 2020 it couldn't have gotten any better and there was 12 bikes so we go from 19 from 20 2019 where we had over a million bikes and the next year which was the first year that rolling thunder didn't bring the bikes in it's so ironic that that was the year of COVID. it's hard to put into words how i feel about the the is it karma is it just random whatever I, I don't know. Serendipitous usually refers to something that's good. You, hello? Anyway, um, so serendipitous would not be the right word, clearly. But when things happen, and you look back and you say, how did all that happen at once? When Artie Mullis said, okay, 2019, that's the last year Rolling Thunder is coming to Washington, D.C. Now it's going to go to all these other cities. And then AMVETS picked it up and said, okay, we're going to continue. They couldn't use the name Rolling Thunder. They said, okay, Rolling to Remember. Fine. How how could anybody have predicted that that 2020 year, the first year without, you know, the Rolling Thunder cadre, putting it all together, making it happen, bringing in those, okay, we go back down to 700,000. We hadn't had less than half a million in the worst weather, the worst situation in the last 10 years before that. Who could have predicted COVID and what would have happened if COVID happened and Rolling Thunder hadn't said, we're not coming back to Washington. And it wasn't the first year of of the ambits and Rolling to Remember. What would have happened? How many people would have come into Washington? I got turned around or had some sort of a confrontation with who knows what would have happened. Instead, yeah, the handful of Ambets and Robert Patrick and I got invited to the White House to 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 ride around the, the South Lawn after a speech by you know, just to us by President Trump. But that speech was really addressed to the veterans, the rolling to the rolling thunder now rolling to remember demonstration of everything that we are. And and so the fact that by the time the next Memorial Day rolled around, 2021, there was a new president, a new administration. We couldn't have the Pentagon parking lot because of that and other reasons. And it, what happened, happened. But, but how do you reconcile all these things? It's crazy. I think it's just crazy. I, I, it just... It is what it is, but it's crazy. So we have this great weekend. And again, punch a hole here and there, give a critique to this or that. Sure, but why? It was a great weekend. It was Memorial Day. With the demonstration ride was 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 done. And yes, that ride had, I, I think, almost 100,000 bikes that left the Pentagon Park line at 12 o'clock. It, was, it had the same feel as it used to have. 
right there, downtown Washington, D.C., the Pentagon, going over Arlington to the, to the Lincoln Memorial, down Constitution Avenue. It was really, truly awesome. So we left off the last rolling to remember on um, Saturday, Saturday night with me, Robert, and Mark going to the TAPS event. That's the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. Bonnie Carroll, whose husband, I, I believe he was a general, was killed in 1994, okay? She founded this organization, and, 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 and she is the president and founder of this amazing organization that brings together the survivors. It's, it's assistance for the survivors of tragedy Really, it's for it's for military families, you know, who whose what husband, son, father, whatever, were killed in action, and also first responder families. And it, and it was really eye-opening the first year that we went there that Robert gave his speech to see what this organization does and how important this organization is, helping the family of those killed in action, especially the children. It's just an amazing organization, and I mean, I mean, you know, families who met with tragedy because of military service or first responders, okay? And it, it was just a, a, a great place to be with these people, these heroes, these families. And we always talk about the Gold Star families, and, and believe me, they're all there. But, but here are the children who's, they go to school, they sit in the classroom alone with their own stories, their own lives in their heads, looking around. These other kids have their dad or their mom or maybe their older brother or sister. And, and they, have, they have nobody. Yeah, they can talk to a guidance counselor. They can talk. But first, they've got to open up. First, there's got to be some evidence that this kid is having a problem. But when they go to this, the, the, the camp environment, and every other kid in the room with them, in that camp or wherever, is in the exact same situation. Then what flows between them is naturally allowing them not just to vent, but to bond. But you could see it in this room. These kids all, they know each other. And there's tons of them. But they know they've come together and met at the different camp situations school situations where however there's the body carol and her crew of amazing amazing people what they do all year long that that they are able to get these people it's also the parents that they get together and bond having gone through the same tragedies and i can't even tell you how it makes you feel to be in that room. I know how it makes me feel just being in the presence of a group, especially a group, maybe 20 or 30 of the gold star, mostly moms at the candlelight vigil or at the wall or at any one time during that weekend, the Rolling to Remember weekend. But it's a room with over a thousand people, all of whom share the same sad experience, but have also shared the experience of getting to know each other throughout the year by being together on occasions throughout the year where however they've come to know and, and become friends and it was just great. So that was Saturday night. Now Sunday morning of course 
at Rolling Thunder, we go to, we go to the Pentagon parking lot, and we're up at like what five in the morning. We go down to Crystal City. We meet at quarter to six, six o'clock. <laughs> the, the the in the right there behind the building is where the the Starbucks opens up, so we get something. We line up, and we 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 ride in, so we get there by what six thirty, quarter to seven, and it, and it's already packed. Well, we didn't have that experience this year. We knew, okay, it's back at the Pentagon, and it's, it's going to be something similar. But we didn't have a million bikes. We didn't have a half a million bikes. But damn it, we had damn close to 100,000 bikes. And, and yeah, we rolled in a little late. It was a little more relaxed. But it was it was fantastic. We, we, look, when we got there, it was about 8 o'clock, and it looked pretty wide open. <laughs> And, you know, and they go, oh, my God, this is going to be terrible. Because if we only had the amount of people, I don't know, 15, 20,000 that we had at RFK Stadium, it was going to be one big empty parking lot. I mean, Pentagon parking lot is huge. So, you know, we get there, we're talking to each other and, and, and talking. I was interviewed by the Washington Post. And I'll, I'll be honest, I've been pretty upset all year long over what happened with the PACT Act. And, and if you don't know, I'll tell you right now, and I'm not going to hesitate in my criticism of what happened. They were there last you know, year ago passing the PACT Act, which gives money to people who are victims of the burn pits mainly. But it also enhances a lot of the coverage for Agent Orange and, and other things. And that's great. So what is a, a PACT Act or any other act? What does it mean? It means that there's going to be money given to people who suffer because... They joined the battle. They they were on a battlefield and something untoward happened, like Agent Orange. Like when they dropped Agent Orange all over Vietnam to kill the foliage so we could ease, more easily attack the North Vietnamese. That, that's an oversimplified explanation. They didn't anticipate the unintended consequences of Agent Orange. It, that it, it really messes with the human condition, your body. And so whatever comes from it, all kinds of Agent Orange poisons where people died and some people just got heart conditions or diabetes or cancer or other things they just didn't intend. And the burn pits, famously in Iraq and Afghanistan, where they just burned everything. And and the, the contagious smoke, the poison in the air, was no one accounted for that. No one thought about, well, you know, when you burn everything, just throw in these burnt pits. we got to get rid of all this stuff. There's chemicals in there, too. There's a lot of things in there. And they caused a lot of damage. And people suffered tremendously. You know, I remember how much suffering there was. And no one, again, no one thinks of these things from the pilot at, at Ground Zero after 9-11 when... You talk about a burn pit, man. When you went to the site where the World Trade Center was and, and the other buildings that were destroyed, it was, I don't know how many square blocks of, of building site and how many bodies were found, body parts were found, were all the other, and there were people on that pile. I mean, when we got there on Thursday, Dave Finney and I got, got in there Thursday night, I'm, I'm sure it was Thursday night. It was a little early, and we and we we drove right up to uh, the Javits Center because you know we go to the pile. And you want to volunteer, you want to do what you can, and they, they direct us back 
to the Javits Center over on, what, 11th Avenue and, uh, I don't know, 50th, 60th, I don't even remember. It's been so long. I used to spend so much time in New York. I would know all these places, where they were, where they're located. But anyway, we drive back to the Javits Center, find a place to park the truck, walk around the corner. Now it's like 10, 11 o'clock at night, but this is where you volunteer. And there's a line of people volunteering, more of, a, of an import. Not that it's more important, but it, it just had this tremendous effect. Seeing the busloads of volunteers being brought back to Javits Center and watching these guys come off those buses with you know that thousand mile stare they've just been someplace that they could never have imagined and I, I don't know if it's talked about enough you don't you can't unsee that body parts the the conditions that they lived through being on that pile and they were there because yeah one of the th- you, you had to have some welding ability they were they were trying to disentangle this this metal that was just all over and they had to they had to burn through it to get to what was left of the humanity that was destroyed by these radical muslims this i don't i don't know how to describe these animals these savages this disgusting people that would do something like that and and 3,000 people died right there. And there they are. There's the remains of those people at that site, all scrambled up with the twisted metal from the building that collapsed. And the volunteers that are going there to, to, to help burn through this metal and untwist everything to find the remains of human beings and, and give them some sort of a dignified to take them out to try to identify them for their families. So that's what it was like on 9-11. That's what we were part of and we went down to stand online in the rain, by the way, that Thursday night, in the rain to sign up, to volunteer, to help out. And so all these people and so many Port Authority cops, you know, 37 Port Authority cops were killed. There's only 900 people, men and women, on their Port Authority police force. So 37 were killed. And it was horrendous. But here they are at this big burn pit. How many of those, the cops that remained on the force, that spent so much time at that burn pit, at that pile, at that ground zero. And they suffered from everything after that. Every kind of cancer, every kind of bone and nerve degeneration and how many died and how many have lived in in horrendous conditions ever since. All these, what, going on 22 years? It's horrible. And how many years did it take them to get anything in the way of help and compensation from the government. So lobbying for this PACT Act to pay those who suffered because of burn pits was was a very worthwhile thing to do. But when they actually signed the PACT Act, well, they had not signed it, but when they, they actually voted on it, they weren't voting on all the money. 
they, the, the, the vote was, okay, $760 billion. Now, that's just not money that's, that's handed over to the people that qualify by their suffering, by the quality or disquality of their life since going through this, living through the burn pits, living through not expecting that, oh, yeah, hey, listen, let's just burn everything. And then they walk away. And a month later, a week later, a year or years later, they come up with cancers or some other skin disease or some other lung disease or, or diabetes or heart conditions. It's like, wait a minute, what? didn't anybody plan or think? It's compensating for the irresponsibility of the leadership that we depend on and have expectations of that it's the liability of the government and so that money doesn't just go into the pockets of the victims it also goes to pay for the administration for the drugs for the for the research and development of how to fix and help these people have a better quality of life it goes for a lot of things so the the number that they reached 760 billion that was going to be paid out over how many years? That number didn't come out of the air. Somebody didn't just say, hey, how about $760 billion? No, just give them $300 billion. No, give them, give them $900 billion. No, they, they arrived at a number. After a lot of consultations, meetings, deliberations, whatever it took. So when Congress is now voting on it, did they vote to, to, to allocate $760 billion to the PACT Act? No. They voted to allocate $360 billion to the PACT Act and $400 billion to a discretionary fund. What does that mean? And why? If you could just give $360 billion and call the PACT Act done, when during the deliberations they were talking closer to $800 billion, but now you're only going to get $400 billion. Okay, but that's not the way they put it out there. They put it out there as if, no, you're going to get the PACT Act, just as you, the, the whole thing, the whole package, $800 billion, but we're only going to give you 360 of it, and we're going to hold back another 400 the other $400 billion in, in, if, so we can use it for anything we want. And you can argue all you want, but if, if you're going to say to me, oh, yeah, but it's all out, it's all earmarked for the PACT Act. No, Mike, stop it. Don't say they could use it, you know, to, to, to pay for transgender surgeries. Or, or to pay for reparations. or to pay, it, Yeah, they can. It's, that's why it's called discretionary. So when, when Congress votes and says, okay, we're going to use $100 billion, that $400 billion that we got from that PACT Act that we took care of with the other $360 billion. So we're going to use $100 billion to pay off, uh, I don't know. Um, okay, transgender surgeries for people that can't afford, good people who are, whatever. What are you going to do about it? That's what Congress votes for. Well, it's a Republican majority and it probably won't happen. How do you know? The Republican majority, the same majority, voted to only give $360 billion to the PACT Act and keep $400 billion for discretionary funds. Oh, 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 no, Mike, that's not what happened. John Stewart went in there and lobbied like hell, got all over television, Fox News, CNN, everywhere, and said because the Republicans wouldn't sign the bill, wouldn't sign the bill, 
for, for, for the way it was. It wouldn't sign the Pact Act. And then and he called them names and said they hate the military and they were anti-military. And all the Republicans, they say they're so for the military, therefore military spending. But yet they wouldn't sign the Pact Act. That was John Stewart lobbying every place you went. And what did the Republicans do? Did they fight back and say, no, we're not going to sign it? Because only $360 billion is going to the Pact Act. $400 billion is going to discretionary funds. We want all the money. Nope, they didn't do that. You know what they did? They caved in and signed the Pact Act. And everybody celebrated. So, John Stewart gets a big pact on the back. <laughs> pat on the back. And everybody else goes, ah, the Pact Act was signed. Yeah, the Republicans reluctantly signed the Pact Act. Yeah. The Democrats were the champions. They were the champions, $400 billion in discretionary funds going to Congress. And I'll say all the Congress, because I don't, I'm not going to give the Republicans a pass. They signed the same bill as the Democrats did. Was it, was it because their arms were twisted? Was it because, I don't care. They caved in. I don't care how they caved in. They caved in. And they gave $400 billion discretionary funds to Congress. To Congress. Yeah, all the Congress. And so there I was. I only to remember the first one since the last one where we lobbied along with John Stewart by John Stewart, who came out and talked to us and talked to me personally for a quite a while and charmed me. And I said, yeah, you know why? I guess it's right. Because originally I said to the ambits, why do you have this liberal in there lobbying for us? Something's going to go wrong. There's something's not right here. This is something's just I, I don't trust. This guy, he's a liberal, he's a Democrat, but he went up there in the most sincerest way, talked to me personally for quite a while. And, you know, he's buddies with my best friend, Robert Patrick. They're good buddies for 20-something years now. They go back to when they first came out to Hollywood together, worked the tables of this place or that place, <laughs> sat on the street together after auditioning for parts. They got a long history together. They're friends. Robert's saying to me, Mike, John Stewart's a great guy. I'm saying, I'm not denying that. Might be a great guy. He's also a liberal. He's also one of the guys that, you know, is one of the reasons why we abandoned, we abandoned the South Vietnamese people who sent them into a life of, if they lived, because millions were killed, slaughtered, died, you know. And if they lived, they lived as slaves. They were, they were, they were commie slaves to the North Vietnam, North, well, some of them were slaves. For Nike. Oh, they say they work for Nike. Yeah, 25 cents a day. <laughs> you know, what? Well, let's see, what's better? Having all your food and, you know, everything paid for. You don't get paid, you call it, quote unquote, slave. But everything's taken care of. Oh, is it good? No, no, it's not the greatest conditions. Or is it better to get 25 cents a day and fend for yourself? Yeah, well, if you can't make it, <laughs> you can't eat, you can't eat. You can't buy the food, you can't buy the food. Wait a minute. If you work for the massa, yeah, the food's there. You can eat the food because they want you to get to work the next day. But if, you just, if, if Nike's going to give you 25 cents a day and you're on your own, either way, it's slavery to me. So that's just my two cents. So so th there we go. I'm sorry, John Stewart. You're one of those people that are responsible for us abandoning, turning our backs on the South Vietnamese. Said, it was a bad war. And they and, 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 and we didn't win that. Yeah, we did. We won. We, the soldiers, won the war. I say that every day, all day long, everywhere I go. Yeah, we won the war. Don't, don't any Vietnam vet feel any differently than I felt 
that my dad and his friends felt when they came back from World War II, where we lost almost a half a million Americans in four years. And yeah, no, I'm not saying it wasn't a noble cause. I'm not saying they weren't great Americans fighting that war, doing what they had to do to save the world. But we did what we had to do to save the South Vietnamese, the Cambodians, the Laotians. And then we just turned around, walked away and said, yep, we're tired of this, man. I'm tired. I'm just forget about it. I'm, I'm like, forget it. Come on home, man. No, no, no. And I'm, oh, and how much did we say we're going to give the South Vietnamese to keep fighting? Get out of here. They're not going to keep the money here. Yeah. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, what about the Ukrainians? We're going to give them all that money. Yeah. Well, maybe we should have given them money 50 years ago in Vietnam. We didn't. So we're going to give it to the Ukrainians. Uh, come on. No. Yeah. That was that was the John Stewart's of America and his people who. And, and so when I said to them, I just don't trust a liberal fighting for us to get the pack. Yes, he fought for the 9-11 families. There wasn't a military component there. And now there is, and I just don't trust him. Well, it wasn't the military component that that I should have been skeptical about. It it was the political situation where he got $400 billion in discretionary funds for, quote-unquote, Congress. <laughs> yeah, and that's what he did. And he, you know, he helped us get 360, but we should have gotten 760 billion. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, that was <laughs> that was the way it was, man. And we 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 couldn't, you know, we couldn't lobby for anything this year. If this year was last year, and we're in the Pentagon parking lot, John Stewart couldn't go around, you know, making his appeal for the Pact Act. You know, he couldn't have done it because we didn't have any speeches. We didn't have any place for anybody to make speeches or do anything or, you know, what it just didn't. So that was that. And we then left on Monday and 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 rode back. It was a great ride back. Yeah, it was it was it was a great ride back. And by the way, here we are, me, Robert Patrick, Mark Navat. We ride all the way there. Now, Mark Navat. As I have said many times, is it not just a former combat controller, um, but he is and has been for the last five years on the combat control foundation board of directors. I forgot how many people are on that board. I think six. And they do a lot, a world of good in, you know, doing whatever that foundation does. You know, you got the Special Forces Foundation, you got the Navy SEAL Foundation, um, uh, 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 Special Operations Warrior Foundations, all these organizations mostly, you know, do whatever they can for the families of the fallen and the children of the fallen. And what most of them focus on is college educations for the kids. Now, there's a lot more than that. There's a lot more that goes into that. And you can imagine, you know, what, what, what you have to do to help those families get through, again, exactly what, you know, TAPS does, but more focused on these individuals. And believe me, these people need and deserve, well-deserved, all the support that they can get from every group that's out there trying to give them that support. They need it. We need to have that. And and I could talk all day long, and, and maybe, well, about our military the tragedy of what has happened to our military in the last 
two and a half years since the Biden administration came in. They've just virtually destroyed it. They, they, what they've done is horrible. And and we need, we we need to, you know, the army can't make its quotas on bringing people in. You know, I'm going to talk about the pipeline in the in the, in in a minute. But you need a lot of people in that pipeline to get the the handful of people that eventually become those those operators, whether it's Navy SEALs, Air Force Combat Controllers, Marine Recon, Force Recon, MARSAC Marines. I mean, you, you, you know, you, you need a very large pipeline to get to those that finally make all those teams and make up the, the special operations component of our military. And then you have every other component. You need a pipeline for people in, in, in every facet of, of the military service. How many people do you have to have online to, you know, qualify to find those who work, you know, nuclear subs? And, and I don't know how many specialties there are today. Hundreds, hundreds of specialties. And, and to, to find the best qualified people. First, you got to get those who are going to join the military from those who want to just go out to Silicon Valley and get a, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollar a year job when they come out of school. You know, people come out of these kids, 22, 23 year old kids come out of law school. They're going to make one hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand a year. Every damn one of them. OK, that's the way it is. OK, maybe I'm not knocking it. It's great. But that's what we compete with. To get people to join the military, to save our country, to, to fight for the defense of America against all odds. Look what's going on. We're on the edge of World War III in Europe and the Ukraine and what's going on with NATO. And just think about what's going on with China. We've had to redirect our military focus on the eventual war with China. That's a huge undertaking. And we can't. So how how you treat our veterans and the families of those who have fought and sacrificed for all the rest of them is important, hugely important on its own virtue being its own reward. Yes. But you also have to think towards the future and say, how are we going to attract people? How are we going to get patriots to join the military if we treat people the way we treated those of us? that fought in and returned from Vietnam, including the families of the fallen. They were treated like, well, too bad. You should have known better. The Bruce Springsteen songs. Yeah, born in the USA, go down and kill the yellow man. Yeah, that's born in the USA. Yeah, we're such a horrible people. That's Bruce Springsteen. You wonder why we can't stomach Bruce Springsteen? That, that sums it up right there. Go down and kill the yellow man. No, we went down to save the yellow man. So that that's, we, we, we need to demonstrate to every kid and the families out there, these 10 and 12 year old kids when they're in, you know, junior high school and they're starting to think about it. We, we need to, it, it, it's kind of interesting and, and, and it, it's, you know, I'm going about this in a roundabout way. But as, as Robert Patrick told me the other day, you know, we're in Washington and, and, and um, Mark Navarro, who's on the board of the Combat Controllers 
association and foundation. The foundation is the money that they need and they're trying to raise to help the families of the fallen combat controllers. And there's a lot of them are falling in the suicide rate and the rest of it. It's true. Now there's only 300 combat controllers and it's, it, it's, it's a hard spot to fill. There's a big pipeline, but you gotta, you gotta go through hell to go through the training and complete the training and become a combat control. Everybody doesn't do it. And, and so Mark asked Robert to be an ambassador to help raise the money to, to fund the CCF, the Combat Control Foundation, so the money's there for these families, for the children of the fallen, some of whom I know. And, and, and Robert agreed. And then while we're in Washington, Mark got a call that there's a what's called an immersion event going on in San Antonio this first week of June. And could he show up? And then he turned to Robert and said, hey, would you come with me? And he, he asked me as well. And, and I couldn't do it. But these guys rode back to California with me and then turned around a couple of days later and rode down to San Antonio and went to this immersion. What's an immersion event? It's where they bring potential um, donors. And, and there's some people, some good people in this country, you know, who have been very successful. And, and, and you know, it's Mark's job and the CCF job that's the Combat Control Foundation, to identify these people and, and try to get them to donate and help. And one of the ways they did it is they have this immersion event. They go down, they bring these people down to watch these kids train to become combat controllers so that they see the reality of what of what we do. And, and, and so him and Robert rode down and went down to that event. That's a lot of motorcycle riding, man. <laughs> Not only the almost 7,000 miles we did, you know, going out to Washington for Rolly to remember and then back. Then they went to to San Antonio and back. Well, they're, in, they're on the way back right now. But it's interesting because when I spoke to Robert, and, and Robert told me, you know, yeah, he's always said that, you know, when he got out of high school in in the 70s, and the, the, the way that that we... The Vietnam vets were treated, but not only that, how the media portrayed what we were doing in Vietnam and who we were and, and, and the whole thing. It's like, why would anybody join the military? And it's true. But when he went down to see this event and see what was going on, see the training, the amazing training. And, and he said, he said the, the thing that, that hit him hardest first was seeing this, you know, group of what I don't know how many, fifty or sixty guys who are in the pipeline now in this right they're in the middle of the, they're immersed in the training and he could look out and after, you know, being you know, being being made aware of everything going on, talking to people, getting getting, you know, the whole story, he's he realizes that out of, you know, these fifty or sixty amazing guys and I think he said there were two females um, that maybe 10 of them are going to are gonna go through the whole process and become combat controllers. Maybe 10. Learning that there have been classes with zero graduates. Zero. Zero. Think about it. So his comment to me was, 
you know, he, he's realizing you have to see and seeing how this the spirit, the, the the spirit, the core, the camaraderie that, you know, what what makes these. He said just being around these these amazing kids, 22, 23 year olds, just being around them makes you feel good. You want to be part of this. And he, and, and he said he, he realized that he was so indoctrinated, indoctrinated by the media when he was a kid, when he was coming out of high school, when, when he was doing what he did, that he would never join the military. Now he's looking around going, this is what I missed. I, I, I could have been part of this. Because you got to give these guys and gals credit, whether or not they make it, for just getting out there. It takes... The, to be selected, to go through this training, to be part of this quote-unquote pipeline, it's an honor. It's amazing. And you got to give each one of them a pat on the back and a handshake and a hug and say, wow, thank you. And then, you know, knowing what the odds are. And, you know, this isn't like an NFL combine. Yeah, if you make it, you're in the NFL, baby. If you don't, well, you know, look, you just... Go back home and try something else. But if you make it, you, you just won the lottery. If you make it here, you you have the honor of serving your country, possibly getting killed or wounded or captured, or just living with the wounds of war. What we all go through, what we all live with for the rest of our lives, what we can't unsee and what we go to bed every night thinking about. Yeah, that's what that's the reward. But also the reward of saving America, of being one of those, one of those few, one of those today, less than one half of 1% currently serving in the U.S. military. Yes, you have the honor of being one of those. If you make, if you make it, yeah. And if you don't make it, eh, spend the next couple of years as a cook. <laughs> Or whatever. Yeah. No, you don't get to go home. You don't get to go back to college. You don't get, no. <laughs> You're going to finish service. Yeah. So you got to attract people into this program anyway. You know, do I digress? I guess I, I guess I do. But it, it's in the face of all this, in the face of all this, we love America. We love this country, and we, 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 we work so hard to say things that are going to make the kids coming up in America feel good about America, feel good about capitalism, feel good about democracy, feel good about being part of a, of a constitutional republic, feel good about the good things about America. Yeah, you, sometimes you fall on your face. Sometimes you do horrible things to get the job done. Sometimes... You know, it's tough. It's not easy. Capitalism isn't for the faint-hearted out there. It's not. But it's worth it. The rewards are, are a life of freedom, of making your own decision, of saying what you want to say, of free speech, of freedom of religion, and freedom of, freedom of choice. Yes, you get all this, and you don't get that. It's not automatic every place else in the world. You don't get it in China. You don't get it in India. You don't get it in, in Russia. They don't, they're, they're not all bad places. Russians love Russia. The Chinese love China. But do the Americans love America? You know, it's kind of interesting. 
You listen to what people are telling people about America. You know, listen to the 1619 Project. If that 1619 Project was... <laughs> imagine the Chinese... If Would the Chinese government tolerate the, the first page of that book? The first sentence? Whoever wrote it would be in jail for the rest of their lives. But, you know, in America, you got the right. That's what's called free speech. You got to deal with it. And it's worth it. It's like worth it joining the military, going through it all, fighting to get into that pipeline, to be selected, just to get into the training. It's worth it. Yes, it is. Yep, the the rewards are great. And you know what? When when you when you climb a mountain, you get so close to the top, you're right there. You can see it. You can see the summit. You can get right there. But when you don't make it, <laughs> the fall. From, the higher you get, the harder the fall. <laughs> you got to remember that. Is it worth it? Of course it is. And why, why then? I mean, that's the human condition. Not, no, not all of us. No, not all of us. But the ones who do, the ones who do, make it worthwhile everybody else. And I guess that's why they do it. So am I political today? No. Yes, Trump's getting indicted today. Is that horrible? <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. It is. It's horrible. And then on the other side of that, I, I look at Novak Djokovic. Just won his third French Open. Did he think about the fact that he wasn't able to compete in how many Australian Opens? How many U.S. Opens? How much closer to the top of the top? Well, he reached the top. He went over the top. Anyway, his 23 career, you know, victories and, you know, the, the, the huge champion. He's, no one's done that. No one's done that. He, he had to reach each of four majors three times in one year in his lifetime. It's amazing. But remember that there would, you know, for the last couple of years, he wasn't allowed to compete in the U.S. Open in America because he wouldn't, he wouldn't get a COVID vaccination. Same thing in Australia, the same thing, whatever. Is that what he focuses on? No. What he focused on is what he did. He focused and he, and, 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 and he was just so committed to winning that he won it. He won it in spite of it. How much greater would he have been? Well, he's great. How many? That's, and, and that's a lesson for all of us. And you got to overcome those odds. You got to be able to fight that fight. That's who the champions are. If, 20, 30, 40 years from now, when they talk about Jovak Novakovic, if he doesn't win anything else, and, and he still has that title, he still holds those records, are people going to talk about the fact of how much more those records mean because, because he wasn't allowed to compete in so many of these majors for so many years because of COVID, because he stood up and said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to take that jab. I'm not taking that shot. Okay, I can't compete. Well, I won't compete. Think about how many, I mean, look, I'm not knocking the airline pilots that said, okay, I'll get it. I'll take the job. I have a job. I have a job in the family. Everything they're saying is right on. That's not unreasonable. What, 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 what Novak Djokovic did, you could say is unreasonable. What? You're not going to compete in the U.S. Open? You just need one more major championship to Break the world record. This means so much to you. This means so much history. This is your, and you're not going to go because you don't want to take a shot. How many people do you think said that to him? So, so what? What? And, and are people going to recognize? <laughs> I mean, 
when the next guy wins a, you know, 24 and he beats Djokovic, are they going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, he beat him, but he was, he didn't, he wasn't disallowed into five major championships. In the, no, it's just the way it is. And I don't think that, that, that Novak thinks about that. And I, and, and I can, that, that's Donald Trump. Look what he's gone through. You can't look at what he's going through in, in, in an isolated way. Oh, he has classified papers he shouldn't have taken. And so they're going to prosecute him for that. criminal. No, no, no. They, they've been doing this to this guy for the last, what, how many years? Six, seven, eight years? How long has it been? Throughout the campaign, 2016. How many years? Seven years that they prosecute every day. And he just, hey, brushes it off. Is it easy? What do you think Novak Novak Jokovic had to do? You think it was easy saying to his friends, his coaches, his family, his critics, everybody else, all his other players and everyone else? Novak, come on, man. You've got to go. Just get the shot. Plus, you don't want to get COVID. Get the shot. Are you out of your freaking mind? What's wrong with you? Trump, no, I'm not capitulating. I'm not going to cave. I'm not going to... This is bullshit. That's why That's why I love the guy. And, and yeah, there's a lot more to talk about. But right now, I'm, I'm just thinking about the heroes who gave their lives for us to live ours. I'm just thinking about those kids in the pipeline. I'm just thinking about all those kids at home like Robert Patrick, who are being dissuaded from going in the military for all the reasons I can get into. And I will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot to be talking about here. The fact that, you know, the military is saying that the biggest the biggest enemy we have are, are these, um, what are they called, nationalists? Is that what I'm called, a nationalist? Yeah, they say white supremacist. Well, I'm white, and I think... You know, America first, greatest country in the world. Does that make me a supremist of some sort? I don't know. But it sounds like the military is no place. Unless, you know, look what's going on. At the way. Look at the message being sent. You want to be a hero, be a transgender. You know, be a bisexual, a trisexual, be a this, be a... This is, this is what's going on. This is the message. These are the heroes. This is the, listen to Joe Biden, the president of the United States. Listen to the speech he made at the White House just a few days after he made a speech at the U.S. Air Force Academy to graduating cadets, the, the heroes of their generation, the kids who went through high school and joined a military organization to go to college through the Naval Academy, the military, the, you know, West Point, the Army, the Air Force Academy. Then they graduate, and he goes and makes a speech. But then a few days later, he makes a speech to the White House and tells these gay people, LBGT, whatever, that they're the real heroes of the of this country. They're the, are you kidding me? How do you put that in the same breath? How do you, how do you define that as heroism? But that's what kids are learning today. That's the direction kids are going in. Oh, you think you might be that way? Well, be that way. Try. Don't just talk about it. Do it. Try it. Yeah, what are you doing? There's, there's something going on that's very, very wrong, but there's still heroes. There are still heroes. And and the people who make the pro- who pay the price, those who who make the mistake of, 
of making a mistake. That's that's their lives. And and those who move forward and keep climbing to reach the top to get the best they can be and to differentiate, you know, the the the, the what, what's really heroic to the bill of goods that they're being sold. That it's just the way it is. So I look at Donald Trump. I love him. I love what he's done. I love it. I, lo- I love it. I love his 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 heroics. Whether he was president, what he did as president, how he not just tried to save the world, he brought peace to the Middle East. Look what he did for Israel. Yeah, I know there's a lot of people in this country, a lot of Democrats especially, that hate Israel. I get it. I get it. But, you know, we, we do what we can. We accept there's going to be defeats. A lot of them. <laughs> you know, life doesn't end triumphantly. <laughs> life ends with, with something that's very undignified called death. That's just the way it is. You got to accept it. But while you're living, live the best life you can. And and, uh, and you're going to go through hell. You're going to go through all kinds of stuff. I just look at Donald Trump like Novak Djokovic. You make those decisions, you live with them. Donald Trump has made those decisions and it, and has gotten derided and degraded and beat up and and, and he was cheated. And, and and now he's he's going down. This is something we should watch. We should look at. We should see. And, and and we should say that that's the fight that we all have to fight. That's the pinnacle that that we have to strive for. That we're willing to stand up to tyranny, not just for ourselves, but for our fellow Americans and for all the people around the country who look at America as that that you know. Bright city on the hill, as Ronald Reagan said, or I paraphrase. You know, that shiny city on the hill. Keep it shiny. That's what Donald Trump is doing. Keep it shiny. Keep it a beacon of hope for the rest of the world. But it's not easy. It's never easy. It's never easy for those families. It's never easy for the person on the battlefield taking the punches, the kicks, the bullets. It's not easy for that person who's wounded or captured or killed. really really hard that person right there on the front line and it's really hard for their families and their loved ones it's really hard you want to know what's really hard be around those people thank god for the heroes all of them i'm new york mike thanks for taking this ride with me (laughs) we'll get back to politics Yeah, you thought, when is he going to stop with the politics and get talking about the ride? Well, hey, this is the ride. <laughs> God bless America. Thanks for being there. Thanks for listening to Rolling with New York Mike. Thanks for being on the ride. I'm out. Thanks for listening to Rolling with New York Mike. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to keep this podcast rolling. <laughs>